Where do you put the access road? Where do you put the transformers? Where do you put the panels? Is it single access tracker? Is it fixed tilt? Uh, what's the spacing? What is the row cropping? Would water be a good thing? Would fencing happen? Would be a good thing to, to keep predators out? So these are all conversations that happen that inform the project. And when that project is informed, there's a plan that goes forward. Those tenant farmers, those landowners, those farmers can look planning boards, conservation commission members in the eye and say, we got this. This episode is a conversation between NCAT Energy Program Director Stacy Peterson and Ian Ward, a farmer and founder of Solar Agricultural Services. It's the sixth in a series of AgriSolar Clearinghouse podcasts that are being featured on ATRA's Voices from the Field podcast. Stacy and Ian discuss the potential of AgriSolar as a way to remove barriers to entry into farming, practical considerations for getting started in AgriSolar, Ian's connection with Wendell Berry, and Wendell's thoughts on co-locating solar and agriculture. Let's listen. Hi, and welcome to Voices from the Field. I'm NCAT Energy Program Director Stacy Peterson, and I'd like to welcome Ian Ward to the show. I was lucky enough to meet Ian on our Follow the Sun tour in Massachusetts last summer and witness the fruits of his labor at Knowlton Farms in Grafton Solar. He's very involved in co-location of solar and agriculture throughout the United States through his company, Solar Agricultural Services. Ian, welcome. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So you have a family background in cranberry farming. Can you talk about how that background and your experience in that has informed your work in the co-location of solar and agriculture. Yeah, sure. So I, I guess first off, I didn't grow up in cranberries. I didn't grow up in agriculture. I My dad was a physical therapist. My mom was a nurse. They met in a hospital in the Bronx. Mom's from, from Britain. Uh, so it was a month into my existence. I was born in the Bronx, <laughs> moved to Massachusetts where they had their professions. And I grew up, didn't know that Middleborough at the times, uh, cranberry capital of the world, Ocean Spray is located, the headquarters located right there, and uh, grew up around cranberries, but didn't consider cranberries really farming. They're just growing cranberries on bogs. Mm-hmm. And farming was the dairy farms, the 80 farms or so in my town that were, uh, you know, the rolling fields. And so growing up, did my grandmother from Scotland, who never owned a car, that she like uh, taking us for walks? Yeah, we went for walks. Got to see the cowies, as you call them. Uh, and that was my exposure to agriculture. So I always wanted to farm. Uh, tried to buy a farm later on in, in life twice. Mm-hmm. Both times was was beat out by developers. I ah. couldn't couldn't get that through. So ended up buying a wetland, which was a cranberry bog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my way in in 2007. So I came to this as a, as a 30 year old trying to have farmed multiple places, becoming a farmer myself as a cranberry. I was working with the USDA uh, as a natural resources conservation service, conservation planner. So soil water was sort of close to my environmental heart uh, and finally convinced us, a, a, a cranberry grower to sell me their property after I had worked and earned my stripes putting in irrigation systems and all the other stuff that you do to, to get into an industry that is generational, fourth, right. fifth generation. Um, so I was the newbie, new kid. I could talk at length about what it takes to become a farmer, getting farm service agency, farm credits, financing, you know, mortgaging everything, the opportunity to almost break even 
in a business uh, and and how to do all that. So yes, well-versed in that, but that's a long-winded story on why, uh, how I am a cranberry grower uh, and how that does inform the work that we do, uh, both from a planning perspective, uh, new farmer perspective, why we're all about bringing in new blood uh, right. to, to agriculture and how the agrivoltaic side of things, growing crops under the solar panels, become became a thing. Why did solar agricultural services become a thing? It was that's that's that is all part of the information. Great. And when when did you get started co-locating? When when did you get started look thinking about this concept? Was it a part of becoming a cranberry grower? Uh had nothing to do with cranberries. Okay. Nothing at all. Ca- cranberries for me was a cash crop and enabled me to homestead. You know, if the audience has ever thought about there, there's a where there's a will, there's a way. So sure. I couldn't get, I couldn't buy a farm that was an upland farm. So I bought a wetland cranberry bog with a reservoir, but the behind the house was landlocked parcels of land that used to be farm. So I cleared that, created, they had good soils, brought the soils back. And that's where I got to homestead. I had cows and chickens and sheep and, um, and raised family, raised two kids on the farm. So I was able to carve out with an agricultural land lease for the 20 years, uh, my, my upland fix of, of being able to, to raise and support the family with food. So long and short of it, that's how I got into the, the farming aspect. And as I was doing conservation planning uh, and helping farmers across Massachusetts with grants and implementation of soil and water conservation practices that would be supported by NRCS, I was, diversification became a thing. Mm-hmm. Agritourism, uh, solar was one of those things. And, and so I helped, increasingly, I helped farmers negotiate their leases with solar developers okay. and got to learn so that on, farmers were, were hiring us to represent their interests because they felt a little uh, uncomfortable going to planning boards and conservation commissions and, and, sure. and representing their interests. So, so we did it for them. Uh, and fast forward three, four years ago, when Massachusetts came up with the SMART program, yes, yeah, which was the first program in the nation to incentivize agrivoltaics or, or agrisolar, mm-hmm. um, it was a natural fit. The solar companies knew who we were. Right. The farmers trusted us and knew who we were. The state, we'd already worked with UMass and the Department of Ag. They know who we were for you know a couple decades. So it was a natural fit to be a catalyst and liaison to make to kind of bridge the gap. And make that happen. And then we started doing more and more of that to the point where we created another company. We separated ourselves from the conservation planning side of things, started another company, which is Solar Agricultural Services or Solag. And uh, we were off to the races and yeah. bridging that gap, being a liaison. And, and now, you know, it's expanded. We've learned a lot in Massachusetts. And now we've expanded to other states that are thinking about. Um, incentives there are some states that are just they're, they're thinking about recognizing uh, agrivoltaics as a thing maybe not mm-hmm. an incentive and there are some states that have no idea about what it is right. and it's just a different concept for same old solar so we're sort of because we got the planning background and because we are farmers and mm-hmm. because we understand the solar for having seen under the hood going to the, the past 10 years of so of, of meetings working with financiers and the tax folks and we're sort of in that in that great space 
to be that bridge and be that liaison to make projects happen. Awesome. Yeah, you can really see the difference that you've made in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is just doing excellent work in agri-solar and agrivoltaics. So you do a lot of work uh, with different groups around the country as boots on the ground. And I'd, I'd like to hear more and go do a little bit deeper dive on what that type of work is. Can you talk about your work with UMass? Yes. So it, it's really exciting. So one of the reasons why the first projects in Massachusetts have, have UMass as a as a partner is because we had to, we were, the state sort of had a policy goal and they, they, they had a goal of having agrivoltaics happen. Not quite sure how. And the thought was, let's walk before we run and run before we sprint. And with interconnection costs being the way they are, it ended up being that we were running and sprinting before walking. And mm-hmm. it was sort of like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're, we're not 100% sure this is going to work. Can we study this? And so one of the being that liaison type of, of, of entity, we were able to say to solar companies, hey, if you contribute to, would you be willing to contribute to UMass doing this study? And they said, yes. And so that that was out of their pockets. They said, we'll, we're willing to do this. Multiple companies funding UMass to do studies. UMass used that as seed money, as match, to get a Department of Energy grant. Okay. And then, so now all of a sudden, and that was deemed a good thing because now we have national kind of recognition as to what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how AgriSolar Clearinghouse got involved and, and yeah. this put us on the map. Yeah, they're uh, part of the CEDO awards that, DO, that funds us as well. Yeah, um, UMass is the, the DOE. It, and it's an amazing, it's an amazing program. And and we are, we are hopefully doing rights by it and doing the science to support what we think anecdotally will work. And what farmers are saying, yeah, we'll work it and we'll figure it out. If we make mistakes, we, we can fail fast, learn from them, pivot, and we will make this work. So yeah. we're doing that. Uh, it's wonderful work with UMass. To, to add on to that, Rutgers received a grant, similar grant. And we're working in partnership with Rutgers and the American Farmland Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and our role with solar, solar agricultural services role is to be a liaison, again, our sweet spot is actually being farmers and relating to farmers and, and listening to their voice and representing their interests, representing the pickup truck conversations that you have, yeah, um, honoring the land first, yes, farmer second, the solar third. Great. And when you plan in that ma- manner and you approach academics, academia, you approach politicians, you approach legislators, with that in mind, then you honor really the spirit of what agrisolar is, because the solar is 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 helping the other two things, mm-hmm. but the solar doesn't drive, in my in, in our opinion, shouldn't right. drive all the decisions. Yeah. If you're standing in a place, you're sitting out in a field, you're sitting on a stump, you're walking around, you see the undulations of the land, you get the history from that farmer, that tenant farmer that's worked that land. Then you can make a good plan. Where do you where do you put the access road? Where do you put the transformers? Where do you put the panels? Is it single access tracker? Is it fixed tilt? Uh, what's the spacing? What is the row cropping? What has worked in the past? What has not? Would water be a good thing? Would fencing happen? Would be a good thing to to keep predators out, uh, livestock in? So these are all conversations that happen inform the project. And when that project is informed, there's a plan that goes forward. Those tenant farmers 
those landowners and farmers can look the planning boards, conservation commission members in the eye and say, we got this. The solar company has invited us to participate. We are part of this process. We view this as a benefit to our farm, a benefit to our community. And that is a different perspective than, yes. than solar revolt. Yeah. And I, I think it helps so much with community involvement and community acceptance too. I mean, when you come at it with that perspective. What about Cornell? Are you working with them? Hmm. Yes. Working with Cornell, uh, Matt, Max Zhang, hey, Cornell. And, and there's some just, I could, there's a laundry list of really sure. well-qualified people at Cornell. So I maybe shouldn't name drop them all. Um, but yes, working with Cornell, working with Rutgers, with UMass, there's some phenomenal work being done at the University of Arizona, Colorado yes. State. Yeah. Uh, uh, UC Davis is coming in. So there are academics that are that are very interested because this is helping to make farming sexy again. Yeah. yeah. AgriSolar is a thing. Uh, it's different. It's innovative. The way that we are looking at what the potential of soil and water conservation measures that the energy sector typically that has been extractive but could be less extractive or non-extractive and that could actually help fund making soil better yes going from as gabe brown would say going from dirt to soil right yeah right i mean this is this is not new no it's not these concepts are not new when you whether you're talking about wendell berry uh, you're talking about West Jackson, the Land Institute. You know, Wendell, by the way, like I wrote him a letter. Yeah, you told me he, that. Yeah, tell this story that I love this. <laughs> he, I wrote him a letter saying, hey, agrivoltaics, um, I'm doing this thing. And this was like three years ago when no one had heard about that word. I don't even know if I, if I knew about that word. It was just, hey, we're growing crops under solar panels and think it's innovative and think there's opportunity for new farmers and practices. And what do you think? Like yeah. interested because he's been a childhood hero of mine. And he called me up. I see this. I'm like, wait, like what the heck? That's so you great. Know, Barry Wendell. I'm like, what the heck? So yeah, yeah a phenomenal conversation. And he went straight to like, yep, good idea. How are you marketing those crops? Like with Organic Valley, we did it this way. And I'm scribbling out notes. And yeah, wow. he was already so far ahead. Yeah. That, that he's like, yeah, of course this is going to work. How are you marketing your crops? Are you differentiating? And he started, and we, we talk about, you know, where, where Alan Savory and the Savory mm -hmm. Institute is at and sure. where folks like Gabe Brown, I just mentioned, right. um, and, and uh, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures and yeah. Joel South and Polyface Farm. Uh, these guys are innovating and they're using the practices that are indigenous. Right? Yes. This is not, this is not new. No. It's just something that has fallen off a little bit. As farmers have had to innovate with, with the system that the USDA has created, with the low food prices that we've all come to expect, yeah. with an extractive model that, that chemical companies, and I'm not saying this with any heat or they're not right, wrong. It's just the way that it's set up today is extractive. Mm -hmm. Farmers are, are in a tough position where they are, they are, Two farmers can do 6,000 acres with big machinery as long as they don't miss a beat and they can use petroleum-based products. Sure. When you start saying, can we do it differently, regeneratively? Right. Can, we, can we use no-till planters? All mm -hmm. those things are possible. Can we go to, to, to 
use uh, biochar and, and organic, we can. You know, organic has tried to become a thing for the past 40 years, and it's still a very small percentage of the market. Sure. And there's a disconnect between organic farmers and, 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 and conventional farmers. And so the whole regenerative movement, and I look at agri-solar as a vehicle to mm-hmm. have the energy sector kind of engage in that conversation, yes. be part of the solution. This is the bridge. We can all get in the same tent, right? And, and, and I'm not the only one saying this. This is this is Renourish Studio is saying this. Farmers Footprint is saying like, oh, there's a whole massive movement. Kiss the ground yeah, brought a lot of interest in certain practices, right? Uh, no till, just don't rototill. That's we're ahead of the game. But that when you're an organic producer, you rototill is one of your primary means of weed control. So uh, is one right? Is one wrong? Can we just look at it holistically? Mm-hmm. And that's what regeneration really is. It's not a practice that you check the box. It's a right. constant evolution, a revitalization, if you will, and, and of the land and of the people that are working on that land. And AgPV, and, and I'm, I'm on, the, on, the, on the verge of being like a preacher here. Uh, <laughs> But this I is fire. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is the opportunity. This is truly the opportunity before us because in in recent history, I can't remember a time when the energy sector was at the table talking about less extractive means of producing energy and what that can do to enhance a community. Yes. I mean, th- you can put lipstick on a pig. We're talking about the whole pig. We're talking about creating <laughs> this yes. endeavor. Yeah, right. Oh, great. So I know some of the work that you do focuses on BIPOC communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I can. And, and I, I, I honestly, I don't want to talk about it a lot because sure. at, 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 at risk of saying, hey, isn't this something great that we're doing? Um, I get that. Yeah. Right. And, and it, I think I think in and of itself, that makes people feel uncomfortable. Sure. Um and, and sort of highlights the, a difference, potential difference. Um, are we engaging with with communities that don't have access to land or that have a difficult time? They, they're already producing crops. They're just sure. producing on crops uh, in land in the woods on land that they don't own, and right. no one knows they're there. Sure. You know? So literally, this is happening with with folks that I've worked with in the fields, hands, side by side. Um, right. And and we're you know they currently produce crops in the woods. You think that they're going to the bathroom in the woods or not? They're going to check on their crops. Sure. Their corn, their gourds, their pumpkins, the things that they grow, and they use. They go fishing. They use the fish after all that the, the leftovers to go in. They fertilize their crops in the woods. It's very it's ing- ingenious. Yeah. You don't even know they're doing it. So right. we're saying, hey, we have an opportunity to to have access to the land. And the solar developers know we have liability, we have liens. Right. We've come up with a model that says we're good. We yeah. have an entity that right. has the insurance and we have the ability to have these families come on and, and harvest. And we're they're, they're under our umbrella of insurance. Right. Whether that's kosher, whether it's not, hey, we're just figuring out how to do it. 
and we're, and we're doing it. So I, I don't want to like highlight who they are, or how many people, but that's yeah, what's that, happening. Yeah. I just think it's yeah. a, it's an interesting aspect of the work that I don't think anyone's talking about. So I, I, I wanted to highlight it. Um, but <laughs> it, goes about, along, it, it goes right along with, with, with access. Let's just talk about access to farmland. Great. It fits. It's, it's whether it's BIPOC community or folks that, that are younger generation yes, farmers right. or yep. farmers that are 50 years old that have just always wanted to have their own piece of the ground to right. work and couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. If you have a solar array, and I'm saying this because this is what we're doing. Right. If you have a solar array on a parcel of land, that landowner receives a lease payment. Wonderful. The opportunity now, there's already vegetation management payments being made because grass grows under these panels. Right. It has to be controlled in some form or fashion because of either fire threats in the Southwest or because of too much vegetation in the Northeast. It's got to be managed. There's already a budget for that. What's the difference between paying a lawnmower, paying a landscaping company, a lawnmower to go and mow or to pay a farmer or grazer to come in Mm -hmm. and graze with sheep or plant corn or yes. maybe corn is you got to change the space. All racking system, yeah. <laughs> yes, but it, that's happening. That it people is. are thinking yes. about those lines, uh, along those yeah. lines. But soy and 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 uh, lower growing crops, fruiting fruiting crops, those are all that's vegetation. Yes. So now, if you if the solar company has already got that budgeted, is is paying that to the farmer, that helps in an incentive state, and and, and this is a plug for additional incentives yes. in other states aside from Massachusetts right. because steel costs money and yes. every yes. foot you go above ground you got to go a foot under un, below ground to stabilize things and when you spread out panels intentionally you reduce the density you allow you're really helping the farming endeavor but you're decreasing the efficiency with which you're operating solar and so all those things require a little bit of help and not a lot but a little bit of help on top of what's already budgeted the vegetation mm-hmm. management now, now you you got a stipend that's being paid to that farmer to show up and farm. So now it it may not have to be one farmer, it could be two tenant farmers or three tenant farmers. Mm-hmm. It could be what that area wants, what that community wants. With again the the structures that we've created, and when I say we, you know, we've created it with our solar partners, a way that 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 insurance companies are okay with. Lenders are okay with all the attorneys like say we're a little uncomfortable, but we're okay. We've created this legal legal structure saying this three years to do. We have documents that have passed muster multiple times, multiple groups of attorneys that work that allow for this to happen. So so to your point, it's not being talked about, but it we are talking in, in the big sure. scheme of things. Yes. The opportunity is it should be one of the most basic parts of ag solar is lowering the barrier of entry for new farmers to come in Agreed. because there's cash flow that can be used to to borrow against to use to facilitate other in agricultural endeavors and it really is a catalyst to bring younger folks in learn how to harvest the sun twice with practical information at ncats agrisolar clearinghouse get access to more than 400 peer-reviewed articles the latest in agrisolar news, and connect with farmers and solar developers who are working together to make the most out of our shared resources. We'll see you at agrisolarclearinghouse.org. So 
let's think about this from the other perspective. So that that's how to bring people onto the solar. How if if you're a farmer and you want to get started in this, what are what what should they first start thinking about? What are the first steps to get started with bringing solar onto your farm? Ask questions. Ask questions. There are I, I can't almost every every I say every farmer that I've talked with has been solicited once, twice, a sure. dozen times by solar companies that are that they put a they put a big circle around and say we can give you this much money for your land. Now, the the, the farmers like get a load of this. I have a stream run right there. They're not going to get a hundred feet from that. You know, they just they never spent time actually looking at my, at my property. They just broadcast. So if there's a if there's a solar company that comes in knocking and they actually you ask ask questions what have you done in the past now that's a loaded question because not a lot of people have done agrivoltaics or agrisolar right and just to clear up agrivoltaics is agrisolar includes solar grazing it's all all of the above right it's still kind of a uh, a misnomer i don't want a, a term to get in the way of sure. doing things under solar panels Yes, are, and solar, I guess, the, the, is it just a little bit bigger tent than agrivoltaics? Agrivoltaics is strictly with photovoltaics. Agrisolar also includes concentrated solar. So, and it also includes, you know, for dairies, for processing, things like that. So it's just a little bit bigger tent is, is the difference, but it is is absolutely the same thing. Yes, good. Because that, that's that's something that we hear a lot as we're talking yes. this through. Right. And so we can do grazing, we can do crops, we can do commodities, we can do all, all kinds of things. It all fits under that. Perhaps the only differentiator would be pollinator habitat exclusively. Right. Yes. Right. You know, it, it's probably not uh, under that tent. It, it's probably a part, absolutely should be part and parcel of, of a bigger picture, whether it's outside the fence or in, in, in the buffer areas or yeah. integrated. It, it's part, not yeah. exclusive that. Yeah, we look at it as, you know, if, if it's co-located within the landscape, because pollinators belong there. And, you know, also that brings in beekeeping. So absolutely. Which is, I mean, which is phenomenal. So it, it, it is, that's a question a lot. And, and, and what we're trying to do at Solar Egg Services is establish a bar, a high one, and, and have others join us to raise that bar. Yes. So if you... And this is, comes back to the questions that a farmer should ask. Have you, what, what is your idea here? Um, what are, are you going to just bring in a couple of sheep and a, and a honeybee hive and call it good? Um, right. Are you actually going to invest in this property? Are you going to enhance the property? Uh, are you going to provide a well for irrigation? This, is, this land is, is really sequestered for the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, right. It's a long time. You know what's 100% certain? It's going to change. Sure, yes. If there's going to be innovation, there's going to be diversification. That's the nature of, of that's the nature of our, our life. It's the only thing that's, right. that's constant yeah. is change. Yeah. Right. But it's it, specifically on a farm, the crop is going to change. It's, it's, you have to work with the dynamic system of the soil. And so in so doing, the soil is dynamic. You've got to be dynamic as understanding that soil and understanding those, those crops. Which brings us back to, to what was the, I want to come back to that question I didn't answer. Oh, I, it, it was mostly just what do we need, what does the farmer need to consider as they get started? You know, th these are, you've had so much experience 
in, in helping folks get started? What, where are their, what are their first things they need to consider? You know, like I always talk with folks too about things like decommissioning, uh, access to their land, you know, what does the lease look like? Things they need to consider in the lease. I mean, and these are all really long topics, so we don't need to jump that deep into any of them, but even to just name some of these things, you know, what do they need to bring to their planning commission? Things like that. Yes. So, so to be able to say to a farmer that they can look in the eyes of people that they likely know who are on the planning board, who are trying to protect the community, protect them, that, well, we've thought about this. A, this is what we're thinking about growing. B, the solar company is going to provide me a livestock fence, which is acting as a deer fence, which goes all the way down to the ground. It's not chain link. It doesn't look ugly. It is providing a function. The the wildlife can still get through. The fencing stays on the bottom, and it's eight feet in the air, so it's going to keep deer. They could get over, but they have to work hard at it. It's going to keep deer at, at bay. There are gates that are strategically located so I can get my equipment to other land that I still own and farm. So it's not just isolated. The fence, let's talk about the, the zoning re- uh, requirements that there's setbacks from property lines. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Solar Company, have what is, what is your imp- interpretation of the bylaws in my town? I don't want to isolate a 50-foot stretch around a fence. Fences are not generally great for agriculture right. unless they're on the perimeter. Of the field. I don't want it right in the middle of my field because that's going to interrupt the flow. So let's let's call the lease area um, where the solar panels are, are, are located and we'll make the economic terms related to that. But I want you to put a fence, uh, you know, extend it on another 10 acres of mm-hmm. land going around the solar array which serves their purposes and serves my purposes better. So the fence location, gate locations, where's the access road? Right. How wide is that access road? When you're harvesting crops, you need a staging area. You need to be come in, be able to come in. If you got livestock, turn a trailer around, unload that trailer. You should have a place to corral your sheep, cows. What if you have a sick animal? How do you get them? So basic infrastructure can be a part of the capital improvement of that solar project. Without a tremendous expense, if you think it through from the beginning, and and maybe you don't get all of those above those things, but these are considerations as a farmer that you want to ask questions of. And, and even more basic than that, when someone has a lease option on your land, which parcels do you want them to have the option on? And which parcels do you not? You probably want to think about, um, and I'm not a developer guy, right? But you probably want to think about maybe carving off your frontage lots so you can at least continue to use those frontage lots as collateral to a bank for for, for another line of credit in the future. If you give the solar company the right to put solar on everything, then for that period of time that they have the right to do that, you really can't use it for collateral for anything else. Sure. So, so those, these are basic things that, that I've seen as pitfalls with other farmers and and some, once you sign that, you're obligated to kind of go along with it. Hopefully, the solar companies are more moral than to make someone do something they don't want to do. Sure. But documents are legal for a reason, legally right. binding. So these are the questions to ask. This is the posturing you can have. If you are close to a interconnection point that works, and this is the driving force behind all solar, where can you put it? Where's their capacity on the mm-hmm. utility? 
sure. for the solar. It doesn't doesn't work everywhere. Right. It doesn't work most places. In those areas that are that are that are in close to three phase with lower interconnection costs, those are going to be targeted. So if you're being solicited, you can ask that question. Where would you connect? Have you asked the utility yet? Have you filed an interconnection application yet? Uh, where are you at in that process? If I sign this, when are you going to file the interconnection application? Sometimes people get paid just to lock up land and the yeah. farmer is collateral damage because they think something's happening and nothing's happening. Right. We wrote about that in our solar ownership guide just recently. Um, so do you do any work with microgrids or like off-grid solar and anybody that's just like staying on farm with their solar? So we do a lot of that um, on, on the side. Okay. Um, because the biggest bang for the buck is if a farmer owns this owns yes. the solar project outright. Yes, agreed. Yeah. So so that is should be the first thing, that, but those are not mutually exclusive. Right. Yep. You can have a a system that you put on your roof that most a lot of states have grants associated with offsetting your own yes. generation, your own need for electricity. You can put on roof mounted, you can put it right over a, a make an awning, put canopy over your your barnyard, any number of things that you can do to offset your existing I'll just put a plug in real quick. We have a whole financial map that people can find for their state that if they want to go in the clearinghouse. So they can Perfect. find that funding. So that that's 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 I'd say that's tier one, right? Yep. That's that's an option. Uh tier two would be trying to put solar in that is that generates an income to stabilize the farm in addition to offsetting the costs of electricity. But let, let's let's say if your consumption is a hundred uh of something, I'm just making this mm-hmm. simple, hundred, and and you can build a system that does three hundred, then the hundred offsets your your costs and the 200 is profit, right? So that's a simple uh, scenario. Those arrays, can the permitting path for those can be much more quick. Yes. Be much faster. So you, so while you're waiting three or four years to get your larger projects built, if mm-hmm. it actually ever does, you can have a project that takes less than a year go forward because yep. your connection is so much, uh, it's it's so much more direct. It's yeah. easier. And there's the this whole solar app that uh, that DOE is doing to make that all streamlined. Um, so I mean, there, there's a lot more help out there for folks to do that. So I know that when when they put the solar on their land, there can be tax ramifications. Um, is that you know? Can you talk a little bit about the tax ramifications of solar? Yeah, uh, there are there are tax ramifications. Um, one of the basic things that farmers should make sure of, and most solar developers that are Good solar developers are already accounting for this. That any increase in the underlying real property tax and any personal property tax are paid for by the solar company. Good, good. They're not borne by the farmer, and and that that did happen. I'm not sure how often it happened, but it did happen. And so that's something that that should be in those basic questions. The first draft you should be reading through. Access to my property. Uh, use of it in, during the lease, um, no taxation over what I'm already paying. Those are some of the basic parameters right. that any farmer should be looking at a document. Any attorney that's representing a farmer should be looking to protect their interests. With. And in some states, there can be, you know, could it take it out of an agricultural tax and, and have that land then be an industrial or is that a concern? 
Oh, yeah. In most places, that is how conventional solar has been treated as industrial, commercial. Agrivoltaics, agrosolar changes that potentially. Potentially, yeah. It's not, not, not universal yet. There are, there is in the state of Massachusetts, it was just ruled uh, this past year that if you are doing agrosolar, then you can still qualify for the agricultural tax rate. Great. And they're looking at doing the same thing in New Jersey. There's, mm-hmm. there's conversations about that in New York. So yeah. this is starting to become a conversation that yes. is, it's, 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 it, it changes the game it in does. states that don't have an incentive. Yes. Because if the solar company is already anticipating having to pay an industrial commercial tax and they don't have to pay it, now all of a sudden that cash, now if they were, they could just keep it. What right. we're advocating is that that cash that they're saving goes to the farming endeavor. Exactly. Exactly. That's what pays for this the the loss of of, of efficiency. Yes. A little loss of efficiency by spreading the panels out a little bit more, and and a little bit more than a, an average mowing cost to to, to sure. add more of an incentive for farmers to adopt good agricultural practices that are regenerative in nature. So that's that's where that money can come from in states that don't have an incentive today. Yeah, I think that could be absolutely game changing across the country. So we've talked a lot about all the things that are that are changing and are pushing this and moving this. Do you think that there's that we're making a difference and that solar developers are starting to see this and, and whether we're starting to shift this paradigm or what, what more can we be doing to help shift solar into looking at agrosolar as the paradigm? I think it's a great question. Uh, and I think that's a question that a lot of solar developers are asking about is what is this? What do I have to do? Um, and, and here's the evolution from, from my perhaps limited exposure. Um, but fully admit that that the the women this little microcosm of development in the Northeast, mm-hmm. and as I'm having conversations with folks that are that are on the national level, uh, that are that are taking they're also in Massachusetts and they're going other places, uh, and then larger companies that are utility scale, like not just DG smaller scale yeah. under 50 acres, but large 3,000 acres. Right. The first thing that they think of in general is, oh, great. If we can graze the land, then we can eliminate the prior expense that we were carrying for paying landscapers to mow it. Yes. Bonus. Right. It's an economic driver. Of course, we'll do it. Uh, basically, we're not going to change. We see a way to save more money. Under Awesome. Let's do agriculture. Right. So that so. People are, that's, that's where there's a, that's where people, some people are at. Others are saying, tell us more. Uh, we're still a little concerned about the liability of having people and tractors under our array. We're not quite sure about 24 seven access 365 and, but, but okay, how does this work and how do we make the economics work? And, um, and, and once we're having the conversation and they can, you plant the seed of old, the permitting path might be a little bit easier if you engage the community and the tenant farmer that would otherwise be kicked off that land or the multiple farmers that would be kicked off the land that you're going to put a chain link fence around and say, keep out. If all of a sudden it's not a chain link fence, it's a livestock fence. And those farmers that are 
the animals that are on there now are still on there, or the crops that are growing now are still being grown. Maybe not the cow corn, but maybe if the spacing is enough, then the dialogue sort of changes. And again, it's not an extractive, we're going to come and put this on your community and then we're leaving, going to Florida and saying, we're good. Yeah. (laughs) We are neighbors. Yes. Look at this from a community development perspective. Yeah. We're working with the tenant part. Now that, that, that all of a sudden now you're working with one another, you're collaborating. The permitting path can be shorter. There can be fewer appeals. We haven't even talked about the marketing potential of doing things differently. And how do you separate yourself from the masses? Right. And, and if we want us, if we want the masses to do this, then we need to show the masses that this can be done and it can be embraced. And then it be five years from now, it can it could be the norm. Yes. That's the establishment of the bar that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, talking about the masses, why do you think just the general person and in, in, in the everybody should care about so the co-locating solar and agriculture? We have a growing population that's indisputable. Yes. We have populations that are seeing scarcity at rates that they hadn't seen scarcity before. That's a known thing. Mm-hmm. We tend to like a lifestyle that is conducive to cell phones, computers, podcasts. Right. So so we we like our conveniences. Yeah. If we are going to not that there's a romantic image of of cows grazing in the fields and wagons being used and horse drawn by I mean like there's a romantic image. If we can be in a woke 50s without the chemicals that work after post-World War II, like maybe that's a wonderful place to be. The reality is we, we're, we're quite a ways from that. And in order to do that, we'd have to make sacrifices and our lifestyle would have to change pretty significantly. Yeah. So co-locating solar, which why is, why are we saying solar? Why are we saying carbon? What is carbon related to this? I mean, if we can sequester carbon through the practices that we do on our soil, and those practices are funded in part by energy investment mm-hmm. at the same time that we're producing energy and we're diversifying our, our the, 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 the production of our grid, which is helps with our security, national security. If, it, if, if we are talking about diversifying the locations of processing facilities of animals and vegetables, because we're growing vegetables and animals in different places, that there's enough solar grazing that's happening, that we have a massive amount of sheep that need to be processed and and if we can collaborative collaboratively uh say to solar developers again the energy sector who have financiers who want to check the esg boxes hey with a little bit of investment by a shared amount of people we can create another usda facility in this area that supports not just our projects but the 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 whole agricultural community and and if there's another covid type of pandemic we have more than just a couple of large facilities that have a lot of throughput. We we yes. saw, we right. saw what happens when one goes down. Yes. Right. Then, then now we're talking, now we're talking that we're spreading that wealth. We're helping our, our climate in multiple ways. And we're really looking at the, at, at embodying, you asked about BIPOC communities. We're, we're all indigenous to our places where we're at. Yes, right. So big picture, we are helping ourselves 
maintain the lifestyles and the lives that we have for our family and our next generation. Great. That's great. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. Uh, where can folks go to learn more about the things we've talked about today? Uh, they can go to, to uh, www.solaragservices. Uh, that's our website. We're, we we focus on farmers. We're not on social media, really. I got a LinkedIn page that we had, but um, so we're not going to do all the the LinkedIn stuff uh, or the, the the social media stuff. But that's happy to 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 answer questions, be a resource for folks. I mean, and I guess a parting message, if I could leave this to the audience, you know, if, if Steve Jobs were sitting right here, mm-hmm. in 1984, there's a launch of Apple. And his thing that he said was think different. Yes. I, I would say right now, if you're sitting right here, he would say think regenerative in every aspect of that word. Ourselves, our community, agriculture, energy. It's a noble cause that we're bringing to the forefront of the conversation with interest on a national, international scale. We're just focusing it to be able to have this dialogue. So thanks for allowing this dialogue to happen. I'm thrilled that this this (laughs) co-location idea brings about the ability for us to have this kind of conversation. That's great. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.